Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio and I use radio and television building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Sarah Whitmire. My co-host Bob Salzberg is out this week, but the host of Indiana News Desk, Joe Wren, joins us today. This week we're reflecting on the 2019 legislative session and we're talking about the 2020 session that starts on Monday. Our guests today include Mark Messmer. He's state senator in District 48. Matt Pierce, State Representative, District 61, and Brandon Smith, a voice you often hear on WFIU, the Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter. Thank you all for joining us today. You're welcome. You can join the conversation today on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on air by calling in at 812-855-0811. You can also send questions for the show to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to start by just talking about the Republican and Democratic priorities for the upcoming session. Those were laid out a few weeks ago. Matt, do you want to start and just talk about the Democratic priorities this session? Sure. And the the House Democratic Caucus, we want to see if we can revisit the school safety issue because that bill, when it got to the end of the session, removed language in that it would have gotten some funding for mental health counselors in school. And we really think it's important that we have people right there in the schools who have good mental health background that can really maybe head off of the past uh, kids that are heading, you know, toward some kind of violent act. And there's all a lot of other mental health challenges that kids face in school. So we think that would be something important to do, and it fell out at the end, and we'd like to go back and look at that again. I think both sides of the aisle are interested in trying to do something about reducing health care costs. You've got prescription drugs and, um, you know, just this transparency in billing. So we're definitely interested in that. Um, Pre-K, we we really don't even rank on the lists anymore because technically it's available statewide, but the funding is so limited that it's really not getting rolled out. And so we really need to be serious about um, early childhood education. Of course, you've got the uh, teacher pay issue. House Democrats think we should just get that done this session, at least make bigger, uh, better progress on that. And then finally, it's our last chance to do something about nonpartisan redistricting, which will be coming up in the next session after this one. I have so many follow-ups from that, but before <laughs> we do that, I want, I want to give uh, Senator Messmer a chance to talk about Republicans' priorities as well. Senator Messmer? It appears he is not online right now, but we will we'll get to him later in the show. Um, Brandon, I want to get you involved in the conversation, though, because a number of the things here that Representative Pierce just mentioned, talking about reducing health care costs, pre-K funding, teacher pay, I think dollar signs, and this isn't a budget year. Yeah. So can you explain the difference, and then uh, when do we reopen the budget to talk about some of these things? Right. So um, so the way Indiana uh, state government works is that they write two-year budgets, which we did uh, in 2019. So um, that's supposed to last until the 2021 session. So it used to be, if you go back years and years and years, they sometimes didn't even meet in the uh, in-between year. Mm-hmm. And then it became, well, we're going to meet for like emergency situations, like really critical measures that we have to do, that we can't wait until uh, the next budget session. And then it became more, well, let's just meet every year and see what we can take care of. And now, um, for the most part, they treat these non-budget sessions um, almost like regular sessions. The big difference, though, is besides not writing a budget, there's a lot less time. So when they write a budget, the budget sessions in the odd-numbered years last all the way through the end of April. This will only go to mid-March, and that's a statutory deadline. They, they don't move that. Um, and that. And that literally leaves lawmakers with a lot less time to pass legislation. And you see a lot more bills just fall by the wayside because they get complicated, there's, there's hiccups in the process, and unlike in a long session where you can kind of get through those speed bumps, um, in a short session, 
you really can't. There's literally, you run out of time on a lot more issues. So there are fewer bills written. There's fewer bills that are passed. As far as reopening the budget, that happens um, if and when Republicans or whoever's in the majority decides they want to do that. There have been cases in non-budget sessions where they pass big spending bills. There have also been cases in non-budget sessions uh, where they resist any effort to do that. So, um, for example, uh, particularly as it as relates to the teacher pay discussion, uh, I think about a very recent example um, in road funding. So. We had this road funding crisis a few years in the, in the middle of the last decade around it, it emerged sort of in 2015 and they had already passed the budget and they were like, OK, well, what are we going to do for a long term sustainable road funding plan? Well, they had a huge study committee and, and a whole task force assigned to, to figuring that out. And they did that in 2017 in the in the budget. But in the interim, in 2016, they passed one time short-term road funding money to kind of bridge that gap to say, okay, we're starting to address the problem, but this isn't the long-term solution. That'll come next year. That's what a lot of people want to see happen on teacher pay this time around. It's mm-hmm. you, there's, there's, there's some people who acknowledge, yes, the long-term sustainable solution that Governor Holcomb's task force or commission on, on uh, teacher pay is, is trying to craft or at least come up with proposals for, that won't be ready until the 2021 budget session, which makes sense when you're talking about building something into the state spending plan. But there are a lot of people who believe that there is some short-term money that could be spent now in the 2020 session um, to sort of address that. The other thing is, while it's true that the legislature didn't even meet in the off years until after 1971, it was pretty routine in the later 80s and into the 90s to do supplemental budgets in the short sessions. And they would just kind of look at it. And if you had extra revenue coming in above forecast, they might go ahead and allocate that to some new things. So there there have been um, points in history where there are these supplemental budgets. And essentially, the governor is asking to reopen the budget because he said, we've got this extra $300 million that came in that we had not expected in the last budget year. And uh, he would like to use that to just pay cash for a bunch of building projects. And what the House Democrats, I think, will likely um, be pushing, at least I'll be pushing, is let's invest in human capital. You know, we can go ahead and bond those projects and, and deal with those and keep those on schedule, while at the same time we could use some of that $300 million toward teacher pay, uh, pre-K, or other things that really are investing in people, not just in buildings. Okay. I guess I already thought those were a done deal, that he could... So, no, um, that that extra money um, has to be appropriated by the legislature or at least approved by the state budget committee. But it actually, it's going to go through the legislature. And so in lieu of Senator Messmer not being on the line at the moment, I'll, I'll give you the Republican line on that, which is, yes, you're sort of technically reopening the budget. But at the same time, uh, you're also not because the legislature already approved all of the projects on this list. Um, every one of the things that the governor wants to spend the, this money on, this this extra money that they didn't expect to have was already approved by the state legislature. But what they approved was bonding, which is how the government funds a lot of its projects, its big capital projects. What the governor is proposing is, well, instead of doing bonds for the next 20, 30 years and paying interest on those bonds over the next 20 and 30 years, let's use this one-time cash and just pay for it all up front, which saves you interest, I mean, literally over $100 million in interest payments over the next couple of decades. Um, But then there's the view on the other side, which is, well, if these buildings are going to be used for the next several decades, why don't we pay for it for the next several decades and spend some things on what we need to spend them on right now? Okay. Well, then over the period of time, I assume you can anticipate how much time some of these issues will take over the course of a uh, any session, too. Is that correct? And so some of this has to kind of wait and, and go through study committees and so forth as well. Well, it all depends. I mean, some issues have a life of their own, mm-hmm. and they kind of pop up, things you don't expect. But the the majority party has a lot of um, parliamentary tools that really allow them to control the agenda. And that's what we saw last year with the hate crimes bill, where it was bottled up in committee, Democrats were waiting for an opportunity to offer amendments because we felt the proposals have been discussed were not expansive enough, not inclusive enough. And uh, we came in one day after the filing deadline to learn that an amendment was been filed that was basically stripping a bill out, dropping in the Republicans' preferred language, which totally blocked the Democrats from offering any um, different 
approaches to that bill, and, and avoid, Republicans could avoid voting on that in the House. And so the majority party has a lot of tools at the disposal to really control the agenda. So if they want to keep issues off the floor, they can usually manage to do that. If there are things that are their priority, the leadership has a way of kind of telling the committee chairs and people, we need to move this along and make it happen. And it's important that he points out the majority, that the, the language he used was the majority party. In Indiana right now, it happens to be Republicans. In the past, it has been Democrats, and they use the same sort of tools to control the agenda. That's what the majority gets to do. So, Senator Messmer, I want to ask you, um, just in, in light of what Representative Pierce and Brandon just said, is there much appetite among Republicans to do something about not just teacher pay, but there were a number of issues that teachers were rallying for during the Red Fred Day? Okay. Well, I guess I'll have to apologize. While we were on hold uh, for the news, my line disconnected, and, and Bent had just got me dialed back in, so I, I really just heard about the last 10 seconds of <laughs> Representative Pierce. So... Um, I mean, I, I guess you'll have to... Yeah, so um, we were talking a little bit about teacher pay and then the the debate about whether the budget should be opened up to do something about teacher pay now. And I guess I'm just wondering, aside from just the pay issue, you know, teachers were advocating they want more equitable school funding, fewer tests. Um, then there's the issue about the licensing requirements. Are we going to see movement on any of these other issues that don't really require any money? Um, I, I mean, I think I think educational issues outside of the you know outside of the budgetary uh, element of it, I really do not anticipate you know um, anything moving through that would that would you know require reopening you know the budget to deal with teacher pay. I mean, I know there were some excess or you know funds above anticipated levels that that came in toward the end of last year, but um, I mean, other than projects that were capital projects that had bonding approved for that they'll end up paying cash for. I mean, I, I don't really anticipate, you know, pay being addressed, but there are a variety of issues that I think there's some openness, at least on our side of the building. Uh, I mean, we, we've, we've uh, passed twice bills that would greatly reduce the, you know, the, the time spent on standardized testing. Uh, we can't seem to get things past the House education chairman, uh, you know, <laughs> dealing with, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, things that would have replaced I-STEP, going back to standardized, you know, testing formats that are, you know, much less uh, time-intensive. Um, definitely support that. I think I think there's a high degree of openness to uh, to relook at the, you know, some of the what they call it, you know, externships, whatever the, the you know, as far to renew teacher licensing to to reevaluate the the value of that. Um, and 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 reduce some of the mandates, you know, for folk for teachers on that. Uh, anything that we can do that that uh, reduces the amount of regulations that not only teachers but administrators and counselors and I mean there's there's a lot of time spent uh, that you know that you know that takes a lot of staff time and 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 teacher time and and principal time. You know that at the end of the day, you know, don't really move the needle on on improving. Uh, education outcomes for kids i think there's you know there's openness there um so yeah i mean i i would say any anything outside the budget window you know ha has some you know has some agreement at least on the senate side of the building and i think even you know to a high degree there's some you know there's some interest on the you know, from house leadership to reevaluate and re-examine you know, some of the things that we're requiring teachers to do uh, a, a great example of that, and Representative Pierce alluded to it a little earlier, uh, Senator Messmer just did too, which is that pretty much everybody agrees. So they, the, the state transitioned to a new statewide um, standardized test this year for, for Hoosier students. And as was expected, anytime you move to a new test, scores drop. That's true in Indiana and across the country. And they dropped a lot. Um, the right. problem... And, yeah, and you, you have to, right. you have to stop. I mean, you can't, imp you can't, Required. I mean, and put those tests onto teacher grades, onto school grades. I mean, you just can't because when you change the format, you change the the testing system. You've got to have a year to recalibrate. And so, I mean, that will be one of the first bills that I can guarantee will move through the House and Senate. You know, as, as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> that yeah. that'll be done and signed into law. Um, top 
top priority when, you know, when we get when we get to Annapolis next week. And we've already seen um, both the House and Senate Education Committees have meetings uh, Monday and Tuesday. Monday, uh, yep, Monday in the Senate, Tuesday in the in the House, and those are the bills. Uh, at least in the Senate side, that's the one bill on the on the calendar. In the House side, that's one of two bills on the calendar. So, to Senator Messer's yep. point, that's going to go fast. Yeah, I think yeah, that, that I think, and I, and I think I think there's a high degree. Uh, you know, I know I know Senate leadership. Does and I'm pretty sure House leadership does as well. You know, even the even the process of, of, of decoupling teacher pay to test scores. I mean, I think there's a high degree of of willingness to address that. Uh, you know, that that will probably come, you know, from the House side of, of the building. Um, but you know, should there get some traction and, and be agreement to move that, uh, I, I think there's a high high degree of interest uh, from House and Senate leadership to you know to address that issue as well. Yeah, I think that um, there'll probably unanimous support for the hold harmless provision to basically say we're not going to count that first test um, mm-hmm. toward a normal thing. So I think that will be go, go pretty smoothly. What's interesting to me is, um, and Brandon can check me on this, when Speaker Bosma made his remarks on Organization Day, it seemed to me like he was actually signaling a willingness to step back from some pretty strong ideological philosophies of the Republicans on education policy, and that being that there should be a link between um, teacher pay and the results of their students on the exam. It seemed like he was saying that. He kind of talked about maybe reestablishing the teachers more as a profession and not just as like people in widget factories, which I know Democrats have complained about a bit over time that we're not really teaching, uh, treating teachers as professionals. And so... I think that there may be, for the first time, a shift away from some of the policies that have been implemented over the last decade that maybe um, people are finally recognizing or not really getting the results that we want or just can't be implemented in a really fair way. And, yeah, and, and I guess, yeah, and I agree with that. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that was Representative Pierce. I'm trying to You know, I took Speaker Bosma's comments, uh, you know, from, from Org Day, the, the same. And the difficulty gets, you know, when you try to link – uh, student test scores to teacher pay, uh, and now with the elimination of of I-step, you know, mandate from you know from high school teachers. I mean, uh, you know, h- how do you implement a a you know a, a regulation or you know a law when there's when there's depending on the student, depending on the age, you know, there may or may not be a standardized, there may not be a, a test format that that even works and. And, and so I think the practicality, although, you know, it might have sounded good on paper, you know, the, the practicality of, of uh, how do you implement it and, and, and how do you, you know, how, you know, how, how do you, if, if, you ha- if you're a teacher that teaches a subject that doesn't have a standardized test, what, what's, your, what's your point of measure? And, and so, you know, I, I think the reality of, de- you know, making that decoupling happen, you know, is, is, uh, has a high degree of support, I, I believe, on both sides of the building. And it's important to note, uh, so there's sort of two issues here. Um, the one that that's going to move really, really fast was the the hold harmless for, for one year of test scores. So basically looking at the last year of test scores, which dropped understandably uh, a lot, saying, okay, for this one year, nobody's going to – schools and teachers and everybody else who's affected by these test scores, you're not going to see any uh, any drops because of that. We're just going to say Correct. it doesn't count this year. The, the yep. other issue, the decoupling uh, teacher evaluations from test scores would not be a one-year thing. That would be a, a new permanent, permanent – exactly, a new permanent situation uh, that has really gained a lot of traction in the last uh, few months uh, among Republicans and Democrats. So yep, I agree. B- b- before we move on past some of these teacher issues, Brandon, I want to ask you about this, the governor's teacher pay commission. Yeah. That said. So when are they supposed to come up with recommendations? And then if we can even look ahead to 2021, do we see that then becoming a big issue in the budget year of 2021? Uh, yes, to the latter. Um, those, those recommendations are expected to come out of the governor's commission um, in the middle of 2020. So after the legislative session, it's, they were never intended. It was always a two-year commission. It was never intended to be for the 2020 session. So this was um, always the plan for Governor Holcomb and that commission, which was really they spent a lot of last year doing listening sessions around the state, um, uh, having people come in and testify about all of the myriad, like how all of this works and that sort of thing. Um, And then their work over the last several months and then this year will be more focused on, okay, so now we understand all of the data and all of the metrics, and they're getting more information, more data about 
teacher salaries from schools right now. That's that's already currently happening as schools report that information to the state. Um, and then this year, the first part of this year, they're going to kind of come up with, and I don't know, it might be a single proposal. Uh, my guess is it'll be more of like a menu of options. Like here's a few things you could do to sustain to sustainably raise teacher pay uh, over the next, you know, and it's not, again, this is not a one budget year um, proposal, or it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be, this is how we can, for the foreseeable future, make sure the teachers are getting the salary increase, increases they deserve. And that'll be, again, focused on the 2021 session when the state writes a new budget. You're listening to Noon Edition, and today we are talking about the 2020 session, which is starting on Monday. You can join the conversation at 812-855-0811 or tweet us at Noon Edition. I want to shift gears a bit and talk about health care costs, something you mentioned, Representative Pierce. What can the state really do? When I think of health care costs, I usually think federal government. Well, it is true that I think it's a lot more difficult for states to do things than some of my constituents think just because health care is kind of a national thing. We also have you know people who live uh, in Indiana near Louisville or Cincinnati or up near Chicago. They're getting their health care out of state. So it does add some complications to it. But it doesn't mean there aren't things that we can do. And there's a study committee that kind of studied these issues. And, and I think that you know, one area for sure that we could get at is just the transparency on the billing, just which is a national problem. It's just a ridiculous situation where people get these huge bills, and if they're lucky, the insurance company will cover most of it. Sometimes they don't, and they're kind of stuck. And, and then we've got this kind of ongoing dispute between the hospitals and some economists and other people about whether or not they're making too much money or acting more like for-profit than not-for-profit. So I think that issue will probably get aired. Um, but I don't know if if much real dramatic um, effects will come that because usually the legislature is not that bold in these areas. So I don't know. Senator Messmer might have a better idea what the Senate's got in mind on yeah, that front. I, mean, I, I think you know Senator Charbonneau chaired that interim study committee, and we've talked about it while those committee hearings were going on. We've talked about it at the culmination of those hearings, and and you're, you're correct. I mean, these are you know these are issues. I mean, some of them are you know some of the cost drivers are really. Uh, you know, really controlled, you know, by, by federal federal legislation that we can't do much about. But, you know, transparency of hospital costs, uh, you know, is, is probably one area that, you know, that and, and we, we looked at a program called the All-Payer Claims Database System that I think some other states have implemented just, just to give patients the opportunity, you know, where practical, you know, to compare the cost for for a procedure, you know, at, at you know, one hospital versus another and, and making that Making that process, making that data uh, transparent and, and easily accessible, you know, by consumers, uh, you know, could could help, should help, you know, drive, you know, drive, you know, cost and competition in, into the process. Another big area that I've I've had constituents contact me, at, you know, on over the years, and it's really more health health insurance company, you know, driver on it is the that negatively impacts consumers is the process called surprise billing. Where you can go, you can go into a hospital that's in your insurance network, and then end up with specialists that work at the hospital that are, at, you know, that are that are out of network, and then you, as the consumer, you know, after the procedure is ran through, and 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 your insurance your insurance company covers, you know, some some items, you know, at in at in network reimbursement, or you know, you know, in network out of pocket versus out of network. And so the consumer ends up with a with a surprise bill because of the you know because of providers that work you know in an in network provider that are an out of network specialist and then re- you know really driving that um, that uh, there's different ways different you know that, that other states have addressed that but you know at in, in at the end of the day when you go to an in network provider you as a consumer you know should should expect and 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 I mean how, how we you know. Either incentivize insurance companies or mandate insurance companies. I guess you know the the path how we get there. You know might vary a little bit, but it, but at the end of the day, for the for the consumer who who you know ends up with bills sometimes in the thousands of dollars because of an out of network uh, specialist that you know ended up uh, being you know the, being borne by not the insurance company but being borne by the patient. Uh, you know that needs to be dealt with. And, and last year we. Also started 
researching uh, the the issue with pharmacy benefit managers, and and those conceptually um, are are designed to drive prescription costs down for consumers. Um, but you know, but as we we didn't really move that bill forward last year, but I think there's going to be some you know re reevaluation of, of that process and making sure the 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 pharmacy uh, savings that pharmacy benefit managers negotiate with manufacturers make their way you know to either the insurance you know the the large employer group plan or the you know make make sure the consumer is the one that you know that reaps the benefit of that negotiated um, cost savings with the, with you know with the pharmaceutical company and, and not and not being captured in and and a, and a unintended profit center for the pharmacy benefit manager um, I mean I think we we estimated last year during some of our Senate committee hearings that, that uh, folks in the industry evaluated that there's about 300 million dollars of pharmacy benefit manager savings you know to Hoosier uh, you know uh, health patients that that you know that 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 cost savings is not it was not getting driven down you know to the to insurance plans and to the to the individuals that it was being being captured and kept you know, by the yeah, by I th- the, pharm- the pharmacy so benefit that really that's an issue that's going to need some attention whether we come up with a solution this this year or not but i mean it really i mean from a state level you you are really limited on you know what you can drive at to try to you know to tackle those but we, we looked at those three areas as being some potential okay I was just quickly going to say the pharmacy benefit people call those rebates. I just call them kickbacks. That's they're really what they are. They're kickbacks. They're getting a piece of the action to recommend certain drugs, and that really needs to be stopped. So, some of these things that you both have been talking about—is there value in just bringing them up, discussing them at the legislature, even if you don't see, uh, you don't expect something to happen? I'll say yes to that. And one example: there's one of the one of the big companies in my district. uh, The I went to talk to him over the summer, just talking about you know issues in general, and he said, you know, he said we've got a large employer self self insured you know pool basically that that, that we operate. He said th- he said surprisingly this year we got the first twelve million dollar uh, rebate. I mean, or or you know uh, the, the, those cost savings of the of the from the PBM to our insurance you know to our insurance pool. We we got the first rebate back from them that they had negotiated with with you know the pharmaceutical companies and and these programs have been around since about 2013 and they said we we had never gotten you know that some of those discounted savings back to our plan before but this year we did and i said well that's really surprising because just just discussing you know that issue i believe in in the last session uh shed some light onto some of the you know some of the practices that were happening, mm-hmm. and and you know they were probably doing that, you know, just to try to, you know, I mean, and a lot of times just discussing the item in session, you know, we wouldn't have to regulate, you know, these PBMs, but they're really greatly an unregulated product, you know, that's that's that's, you know, crept up in the industry, uh, and and we do need some, we need we need to put boundaries around what they do, and and I'll go back to the you know term, some transparency under into what they're. You know what cost savings are they negotiating? You know what's getting passed on to the consumer, and really uh, another unsavory area of this PBM market. Uh, you know, CVS has one of the largest pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical benefit manager programs out there, and and they use the, you know, the reimbursement process. You know, to the independent pharmacies uh, as, as a way to really set unfair reimbursement rates and prescription costs for people outside of the. You know, the big pharmaceutical, uh, the big pharmacy uh, you know, companies out there. So when when the pharmacy company themselves create a farm a PBM company, and then really control you know the the reimbursement rate process to the small independent uh, you know pharmacies out there, it, it, it's created a very unlevel playing field and some unfair competition, and they can really drive their you know their competition out of business. Mm-hmm. I feel like we could do a whole show on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> let's, let's go to the phones real quick. We have Mike on the line, and I think uh, Mike has a comment about school funding. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mike Gavin, and uh, I just have a uh, comment uh, concerning school funding in Indiana. 
Uh, I arrived here as a high school student in Indiana uh, with my family, and my dad was transferred from Illinois to take care of the northern half of the state with educational supplies with a major supplier uh, who carried these things. And about two years later, uh, he basically had to move back to Illinois, broke, and I heard him say more than once, this state doesn't fund its schools. And I have lived here for 45 years since, and I've witnessed the same thing year by year, whereas people are always going, well, we don't have enough for schools. We're not going to fund them this year, yada, yada, yada. And uh, it just seems that this is the way that Indiana goes when it you know, funds its schools and teachers. And that's my comment. Okay, thank and you. I'll just, and I'll just get off the phone and listen. Okay, thank you. Uh, Senator Messmer, would you like to respond? Um, sure. I mean, I, 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 the, the school funding in Indiana has, you know, two very separate uh, silos that money, you know, comes into the system, actually three if you include federal funding. But, you know, the property taxes in your local school, di- you know, school corporation, you know, fund the capital expenses and some, you know, some of the operational expenses that are connected to the to the fiscal facilities, um, operational expenses for, for staff pay, teacher pay, primarily comes from from the state, you know, the state funding formula for schools. There's federal money that comes in for, you know, for special ed and, and Title I. And, but, but also, and prior to 2000, I don't know, it was before I was in the General Assembly, when the, when the state took over the, uh, op- I mean, the operational part of it with the increase in the sales tax. I don't remember exactly what year that was. Representative Pierce probably would since he was in the, in the House at that time. But, but you know, even post-state post operational takeover, you know, since I've been in, we've given schools the ability through property taxes locally to pass referendums to, to pay additional, you know, operational expenses uh, out of property taxes. And, and prior to, you know, the, the state shifting that funding mix from capital money to operational money, uh, schools could, you know, locally, you know, you know, just automatically get operational money out of the property tax base. And, and now that, that when that local operational component is done, it's done by referendum. Uh, so, I mean, theoretically, if, if schools aren't getting enough, and I've seen it in, in my area quite often, uh, you know, if, if the taxpayers agree that the school corporation needs you know needs some additional operating levy you know off property taxes the you know the voters now you know now approve it and have a say where you know prior to the 2005 2006 time frame when that switch was done it was just done automatically as part of you know the school school funding process okay but uh i mean it, we, we did take a a very large step i mean an, an additional 763 million dollars into the k-12 Space this year with with uh, oh with with that about 539 million of that going into the funding formula. I mean, you know, I think we all recognized there was some ground to make up. Um, we've done you know three to four hundred million dollar increases the past you know the past couple budget sessions, but I think everybody identified that you know we needed to get more money to schools and 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 this year made some some pretty pretty big progress in that. And, and I guess long term, you know, that's part of what the governor's you know study on teacher pay, long term sustainability. Uh, we'll make some recommendations this coming year, but um. okay. Well, I think that's where there's a. This is probably a big difference between the Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. Is just our kind of sense of how we're doing on school funding. I know the Republicans like to point to the to the numbers and the increase and correctly say we're spending more money now than we ever have. It's almost half the budget. But when you step back and look at some of the objective data, so the Center for Budget Policies and Priorities back in March of 2019, they um, crunched some numbers using some census data and uh, data from the National Center for Education and Statistics. And what they found is that between 2008 and 2016, per student funding in Indiana increased 11 one-hundredths of a percent. And that's pretty limited. And then if you look at, um, you know, more recent from a June 2019 Governing Magazine, they looked at 
2014 to 2017. And um, that la- the first set of data was adjusted for real dollars. I don't think the second one is. But it has Indiana about 42nd in increasing funding at 5.2%. If you look at Ohio in that same period, it went up 114 um, Michigan, 7.2, Illinois, 17.3, and Kentucky, 8.7. So what's been happening in Indiana is we've been barely keeping pace with inflation, I think, and that's after we took about $300 million out of the base back during the big recession. The Democrats have always argued we've never really made up that base. And so this, to me, is a real fault line between the two parties is how we feel we're doing on education Mm -hmm. funding. Yeah, so we are going to have to take a short break, and then we have a lot more ground to cover. I want to talk about the House Speaker stepping away, marijuana, redistricting, a lot to get to in the (laughs) second part of our show. You are listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about the 2020 session, which starts on Monday. You can share your questions or comments by tweeting at Noon Edition, or you can give us a call at 812-855-0811. We have three great guests today, Mark Mesmer, State Senator from District 48, Matt Pierce, State Rep from District 61, and Brandon Smith, our State House reporter. So we've been talking a lot about education. I want to talk about redistricting because this is something – we have heard, I, I mean, I think every year during the last 10 years I've been here, and there was even a commission that had some recommendations. So is anything going to happen this year? I know you mentioned at the top of the show. Well, as a member of the minority party, we always hope that we'll have nonpartisan redistricting. We're going to continue to push for it. The clock is kind of ticking on getting something in place to do that. And uh, I think it's a national problem. Uh, the courts have basically bailed out of having anything to say about it. So it's going to be up to the legislature to decide whether it wants to have nonpartisan, more fairly drawn maps or whether we just want to continue with the majority party um, doing it. And I'll admit freely that when the Democrats are in the majority, they did the exact same thing. So um, it's just, you know, the shoes on the other foot. And I freely admit that the fervor for nonpartisan districting changes depending upon whether you're in the majority or minority. But I think that... Um, if the people truly understood how technology and all the data that's collected about us, now we're in this whole new cyber world. And so partisan redistricting has gone from a guy with a slide rule looking at some precinct returns and kind of making some educated guesses about how people might vote in certain areas of the state to outsourcing this thing to D.C. to huge marketers and demographers and people with huge mainframe computers who have 1,500 data points about every voter in the state of Indiana. That's used every day to market to us, and now it can be applied to redistricting. And so you end up with these lopsided maps, which in turn push everybody to the edges. So, you know, in my district here in Bloomington, you know, I have not really had a Republican opponent because they kind of look at the map and they say, why would I bother? There's a lot of other districts where it's the opposite. What that means is, as a legislator, I really just have to worry about what my base of support, what my party people think, and and not only party people, but the most fervent activists who I know will vote in the primary. That tends to push people to the edges of the political spectrum, makes it much harder to compromise and get to more common sense solutions in the middle. And so that's why I think that really our whole basis of our democracy is kind of teetering as this ability to use data to redistrict just gets more and more powerful. But time really is of the essence. I mean, Brandon, what do you think? How likely are we to see any real action here? on these? I would put the chances at roughly zero. 
right. to, to answer it as directly as I can. Uh, there's been a push to, to really overhaul the way Indiana redraws its districts for, as you said, close to a decade now, probably more than that, um, but certainly the decade that I've been here. It's just not going to happen. Um, it's, there are enough lawmakers in the state house who do not believe that a change needs to be made. But it is. It does have bipartisan support. That's it does, yeah. I mean, including the Speaker of the House, um, the current Speaker of the House, Brian Bosma, has pushed for this for a long time. Um, not to put it all on Senator Mesmer's caucus, but for a long time, Senator Mesmer's caucus and the Senate Republicans um, were really the the loudest voice saying the system is fine. Our maps are good. They have never been challenged in court, uh, which is absolutely uh, an objective fact. Um, uh, we'll see if that changes. But as, Senate, or as Representative Pierce pointed out, um, the courts, the federal court system has largely decided to take a pass on this uh, issue uh, of partisan gerrymandering. So um, I see no willingness to change. All right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, to 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 actually state that what we have is political gerrymandering. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that you have have a, a factual basis to, to back that up with. If, if you look at if you look at the legislative maps in that we operate under currently compared to what they were, you know, in, in at least when I was a House member, um, those maps were were you know clearly um, much more politically gerrymandered than than the the current maps are are, are in, in general very concise, fall within federal guidelines on on minority you know per, you know percentages within districts uh, represent areas that have they're typically drawn by school district lines you know when there is a break within a county i mean their 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 communities of interest are are followed to a high degree and if you and if you look at the statewide you can say well how, how do the house senate you know house and senate republicans get you know 70 to 80 percent of of the the legislatively elected you know folks in those bodies if you look at if you break it down to the county level and you can you can confirm this if you want Eighty uh, percent of the local elected officials, count, county elected officials across the state, are Republican. So, if you break it down by commissioners, council members, treasurers, auditors, you know every every one of those that are elected on, you know, you know at, at large representations across counties, uh, you know, I- Indiana is to a high degree a Republican state, and and the numbers at the local level don't vary percentage-wise, hardly at all compared to what they are at the state level. Uh, you know, there are, there are probably in Representative Pierce's, you know, area specifically. I mean, that's a, that's going to be a pretty solidly Democrat area, but, you know, but the the geographic makeup of where he lives um, is going gonna, is gonna to trend that way. Uh, more rural parts of the state, you know, tend to be, you know, more conservative and more Republican. And, and when, you, you know, I mean, Obviously, we'll go through the process again in, in 2021, but, um, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no solid factual basis to say what we've got today in House and Senate uh, majorities are based on, uh, you know, political gerrymandering of those districts. When you, when you look at them and they're concise and, and compact and, and uh, you know, obviously you can, you can move the edges a little bit here and there, but, you know, they are all statistically within – a fraction of a percent of the population parameters that they had to be in in 2011. Um, so, well, I, I obviously I disagree. I think particularly if you look at the Senate maps, I mean, what they do is they take large rural areas, and then they come in and they take a little bite out of Marion County or an urban area where you have some Democrats, and that tends to dilute that. And to me, that what really is the telling thing is if you look at the two decades where. Um, essentially, you had the Democrats in the House drawing the House maps, and you had Republicans in the Senate drawing the Senate maps. The largest split in the Indiana House was about 55-45. I think that's a high watermark, about 1992 for Democrats. We get the maps redrawn in, in uh, 2011, and suddenly it zooms up to like 70-some uh, but I, Republican but I, seats. I, I think you can quite honestly say the, the House Democrats leaving for Illinois in 2011 – uh, played a, a much bigger part in their in their pummeling in 2012 than than any any maps. The Republicans won 60 House seats off Democrat maps in 2010. Well, it's now 2018. And, and Are people still and, voting and, on that issue? I mean, uh, the other they, th- they were in 2012, and, and I, I guarantee there's still some impact to that. The other thing to look at too is in 1990, you had um, I think it was 26 Republicans and 24 Democrats 
in the in the Senate, and then the maps are redrawn by the Republicans in 1990, and it zoomed down to now we have like 10 Democrats in the Senate. So I, I think there's a cause and effect there myself. There's also, though, well, the, 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 it also changes. But the, but the, sta- the statewide numbers of, of elected officials across the state don't vary from what the, those percentages are. At the, at, you know, at the overall state level. So I, I, I would disagree with you. Your, your basic premise is wrong. It also, it also goes to how southern Indiana in particular has changed, where uh, there used to be Democratic Correct. strongholds all along the Ohio River. Uh, there just aren't anymore. A lot of those there, there, people who there, identify there, as Democrats I'm, are now Republicans. It, it's, not, it's not just the House and Senate members. It, it goes down to the city council members. It goes down to the judges. It goes down to the, the, the tr- clerk treasurers, the mayors, the city councils, town councils. Commissioners. I, I mean, mean, if you want to look everything, at everything south of Indianapolis has transitioned in the last ten years dramatically. I yeah. mean, there's a great example of that. In one of Indiana's U.S. senators, Mike Braun, voted in Democratic primaries for a long time in Southern Indiana, but is My a Republican. Right. Exactly. Okay. We're going to go ahead and go to the phones here. We have Mike Squires on the line. Mike, go ahead. Hello, this is Michael Squires. Um, I'm a retired member of the Legislative Services Agency. First, national analyses of redistricting show Indiana as having one of the highest indexes of political gerrymandering. Um, the assumptions that being talked about, you're assuming that votes at the local level are the same as votes at the state level, and that's an assumption which I don't think is true. Number two is that with respect to funding of the schools, uh, when, the, when we shifted from property taxes to sales taxes, uh, we moved a lot of the burden from the wealthy to the poor and middle class. Also, you are not discussing the uh, property tax caps, which are made, have a major impact on property tax income and primarily benefit the wealthy. Uh, I could go on and on, but I think that uh, I, I feel as a resident of Bloomington, my vote does not count at all, and it has been gerrymandered out of existence by the Republican legislature. Thank you. Thank you. We've we've been talking a lot about redistricting. I do want to talk about just some other things that uh, are are they going to come up this session and if they're going to see any movement. What about marijuana? Um, Brandon, are we going to see anything happen with marijuana this session? Illinois just um, – Yeah, uh, I mean that, that that's the thing that gives a lot of people in Indiana hope is that you look to our neighbors and you have legal marijuana in Michigan. You have legal marijuana in Illinois. Uh, Ohio's moving in that direction. Kentucky isn't. But um, if I said the chance of redist- major de- redistricting reform was zero, I think uh, any sort of step toward legalized marijuana in any form is less than that somehow. Um so, no, it, there is definitely a shift going on in Indiana. The fact that um, a couple of sessions ago there was a resolution voted on in the House, on the House floor, where a majority of folks there uh, decided to study medical marijuana. That I mean, it was mostly a symbolic vote, but it was a big, it was a big message um, about how far that issue, issue has shifted even in the last uh, five years. Um, there is definitely going to and, – and then – of course, there was the big CBD oil um, push that, that that became legal in this state over the course of a couple of sessions the last few years. Those are not the same thing. Um, but again, it signals that this issue is shifting. And a lot of legislative leaders have started to talk about how, yeah, things aren't going to stay the same forever. But Indiana is not ready to take that step in part, at least when you talk to like Governor Holcomb, they want to see things change at the federal level. Uh, marijuana is still um, a scheduled drug uh, by the feds, which means it's it's largely it's illegal according to the federal government, despite how many states have legalized it, and and I think they want to see more movement on the federal level before they are ready for Indiana to to plunge forward. Okay. Yeah, I think the people are way ahead of the legislators on this issue. I think a lot of um, particularly my Republican colleagues see it as pretty controversial and they'd rather not deal with it. And I think the governor kind of helped them out by saying, well, gee, as long as the federal government says it's a scheduled one drug, we can't do anything or shouldn't do anything. So that kind of freezes the issue. And that's why I don't think that you know, we'll see very much at all happening on that. Although the you know House Democrats, we tried to offer an amendment on medical marijuana, and it was um, ruled out of order on procedural grounds. So I think that there'll be some efforts to maybe try to bring that issue up. And Senator Lucas and some people on the Republican side want to do it. But I would agree that 
just the odds of that happening right now are very slim. Okay. We only have a couple minutes left in the program, and there are so many issues we didn't get to. So I want to give each of you just an opportunity to talk about if, say, we're sitting here at the end of the session, what are we going to talk about? What are the the major highlights that we did did, uh, make some action on during the session? Senator Messmer, do you want to go first? Well, one area that I think there's going to be some pretty pretty quick consensus on, and you may have talked about it while I was uh, waiting to get patched back in, you know, raising the smoking and vaping age to 21. Uh, I know there was some movement at the federal side to restrict sales um, to, you know, to the 21 and over. But, I mean, I, I think we'll probably uh, tackle that and, and, you know, not only, you know, not only the smoking age, but, you know, but possession of the, you know, of the, smoking products and vaping products, do, do what we can to make sure that, that, you know, Hoosier children, especially, you know, kid, you know kids that, that get uh, connected and addicted to, you know, marijuana, nicotine-based products, uh, at, you know, at the younger ages, we need to, I think there'll be some movement on that. I think there's even some pretty, you know, pretty broad consensus and really was last session on, on, on moving that issue uh, ahead. So I, that, that's one area that we'll probably tackle that uh, that we see as, as a you know priority on the senate side you know, going into session all right um matt here's yeah i think that the um big debate will really just be around this 300 million dollars and how it gets spent whether you use it on those projects i suspect that will be the big thing that will kind of dominate the the session but um you know we're hoping that um, one, we don't have another payday lending bill. It seems like the last three or four sessions, we always get this bill to um, kind of expand this high-interest lending, subprime lending, whatever you want to call it, and that's um, very controversial. I'm hoping we won't um, have to deal with that. And so um, we'll have to see. The, the session goes fast, and it's true that you know the majority party knows that the minority party has a platform when the legislature's in session. So usually they don't like to extend that platform longer than they need to in an election year. And so there's usually an emphasis on that. And plus, we'll all begin seeing in a week or so who's filing against us in primary elections, <laughs> if they are. So then people will suddenly be focused on, oh, gee, I got a primary coming up, and may I need to get home and, and start campaigning. Yeah. And so that all pushes people to get out of town. We are going to have to wrap there. A lot of stuff we didn't get to, but we can count on Brandon Smith, who's going to (laughs) start updating us beginning on Monday. So thank you to our guests for joining us today. Um, And thank you to our engineer, Mike Pashkash, producer Benta Boutier, and co-host Joe Wren. Thank you. This has been Noon Edition. Have a great weekend. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.